We made this. Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're bringing you a discussion of music from, amongst others, Jerry Goldsmith, James Newton Howard, Cliff Martinez and more as we discuss, I think in timely fashion, the cinema of pandemics and the scores that accompany them. So... We've got killer viruses on the brain this week, Sean, haven't we? Yeah, and I think it's interesting, having listened back to our the, ver- the various albums that we've chosen, uh, how the tones and styles and approaches of these various composers kind of mutate, and which is appro- appropriately enough, mutate and morph um, depending on the film that each composer has scored, which I, I think is intriguing. It shows that pandemic scores you know, can sit amidst a host of different styles uh which which is intriguing yeah there's there's quite a bit of varied stuff in that we've picked 10 scores from 10 films that represent a fairly interesting spectrum and there is uh we we got sort of took it from a cue from an article that was on vulture where it listed i think it was the 75 best something like that 75 best films to watch about pandemics about killer viruses and we'll put a link to this in the show notes so you can seek out some of these films but it, it, there, there is some interesting variety i mean we talked a little bit last time sean about lockdown and about how we've we've got on and things like that but i mean have you have you spent being locked down watching pandemic films because there seems to have been a bit of a a resurgence of some of this stuff well, appropriately enough uh, for this podcast, I did re-watch Steven Soderbergh's Contagion. Obviously, we'll be talking about the Cliff Martinez score from that. And I think if Contagion was creepy 10 years ago when it came out, 9, 10 years ago, it's absolutely terrifying now. Uh, the the prescience of it, the way that that film in particular was able to anticipate pretty much every facet of what we're currently living through now is really quite extraordinary obviously Soderbergh is known for his attention to realistic detail but right down to the scene where Kate Winslet as the scientist explains the R naught the reproductive number it's like oh blimey (laughs) 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 they got there you know they brought that into the mainstream very 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 early on 10 years ago (laughs) yeah which is interesting yeah definitely I I can't bring myself I haven't watched anything I can't bring myself to watch films like that i can't bring myself to rewatch contagion i always remember when i did go and see it at the cinema 10 years ago i remember being terrified by the particularly the end of that film and and having i came out of that film and i was like right i'm washing my hands and i went straight to the toilet and washed my hands <laughs> and i said i remember saying at the time i remember speaking to my mum. i think on the phone and i was saying we all need to wash our hands mum. we all need to be doing it all the time right and Within about within about a month, I'd forgotten. <laughs> like, and that, did you find yourself when you came out of the cinema having watched it? Did you find yourself very suspicious of anyone that went <laughs> like yeah, that? Any, anyone yeah, yeah. like you can't sort of stare daggers at them? It's like, yeah. right, don't cough near me, please. Don't cough <laughs> for for at least a week. I, I I was in lockdown 
2020 mode like 10 years ago because i was like oh my god (laughs) we're all gonna die it's also a really really good movie for it scares you away from ever 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 having a bowl of shared peanuts or snacks ever again (laughs) it's like you know i mean you know people who organize buffets around the world must hate that movie for like the fact that you know no finger food snacks you know bowls of things no don't go near it because you're that, probably going to get something quite nasty that's true the but i think at post covid the buffet is is a goner like i i don't i don't think anyone is going near anything like that even when we don't have to socially distance in the same way i think that kind of thing's just gonna you know for want of a better word die off because i think it's it's just too risky and films like contagion are you know it's that film is prescient in, a, in, a, in an incredible way. And we will talk a bit about Contagion later, but just ge- generally though, I just cannot bring myself to watch some of these films. And they're trending on things like Amazon Prime and they're always shit sort of B-movie versions like Killer Pandemic. You know? <laughs> like, really? Like surely at this point... Viral we've got the- mutation. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> surely we've got like more, th- better things to do while we're living in a pandemic than watching films. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but that's that that's the irony of the situation is like we don't do we i mean at, at least i mean obviously you know bearing in mind we're talking from the uk where lockdown has now fallen into some something of disarray you know, prior to all that happening you know people were occupying themselves with films because there wasn't a massive amount else to do and i think that contagion spiked to become warner brothers most streamed or downloaded movie or something (laughs) it it, it spiked in popularity which is extraordinary given that it's now nearly 10 years old it shows the relevance of it yeah yeah no you can you can understand it on that in that context people going back and thinking how were we this complacent this film like said it all it it, it predicted everything but you know I i think it will it will be um it will go down in history for that a little bit but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I like you. Like you say, our lockdown is sort of is sort of lifting. It's, it's. I mean, it's a mess in the UK. No, the government don't know what they're doing, and no, and and the advice is all over the place. So some people are still locking down, like me. I'm still locking down, pretty much. Not like shielding or anything, or completely locking down. I'm still going. I'm still going for a drive here and a walk there, but I'm not going out and about in the same way. I'm wearing masks. I'm wearing gloves. But some people. I'm going down the beach, you know, it's on holiday time. So there's there's, there's a real sort of mix of, of of approaches to this as when we were recording this at the start of June. So so I so I think so I think the the rush to watch pandemic cinema will my worry Sean is that people are just going to forget about it. Like people are just going to be a little bit so complacent and like like when people watched Contagion and came out of that cinema and went, "Oh my god, like there's going to be a virus." After this, once things get a bit more back to normal, people are just going to sort of become complacent again. That's my fear. Yeah, I, I think that at the, at the risk of turning this too political, because I don't want to do that, I think that um, it, it's a government's responsibility to lead by example. And it's a government's responsibility to A, not be complacent themselves and therefore instill in, in members of the public not to be complacent. And that has not been happening. Well, it, 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 the first eight weeks of our lockdown, it was fine. It was very thorough. You know, they they effectively scared everyone into lockdown very effectively. And then last three weeks, it's kind of like, yeah, people are going down the beach because they are they are getting mixed messages from people who are supposed to be sending out a clear message. And I think that what Contagion picks up on 
contagion picks up on that very very point you look at contagion thinking surely you know leadership cannot be that inept (laughs) (laughs) no in real life you know contagion is horribly realistic not just in terms of the way it looks at the virus but in terms of the way it looks at the way that people in positions of authority behave um i mean not just contagion i mean you know you can look at like general disaster movies like environmental disaster movies think of things like um I don't know, like random one, like the day after tomorrow. You think there's no way that a leader of a developed country could be, possibly be that despotic and that ignorant, you know, when the world is, is collapsing. And you think, well, uh, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be so sure about that. Well, you know. yeah, maybe no, maybe no. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. And it, it's, I mean, we're, we're recording this, as I say, at the start of June. It will go live in a couple of weeks from where we are. And, you know, people might be listening to this in six months, a year, two years, when the situation looks very different. But, you know, we don't know what it will look like next week. We don't know what it will look like in two weeks when you hear this. So there could have been massive changes. You know, there could be things going on again. It's very, very unpredictable. And I think, you know, we're, we're, the, we're the first generation in many generations from before even, you know, our great-grandparents for many of us generation who lived through a pandemic. You know, the last big one was in 1918 with the Spanish flu and that was comparable and you know in many many ways worse than this so it's it's new ground it's new territory and back then we didn't we didn't have the cinema of pandemics like we do now to uh <laughs> to discuss and think about but despite whether you're watching these films or not there is some there is some interesting music as we as we uh, as we say so like I say we're going we're going to get in and we're going to talk about five films each that are different sort of versions of pandemics there's so they're certainly not all the same kind of thing but they all cover different sort of spectrums of what you would class as a pandemic movie uh you know a movie about a virus a movie about a mutation that kind of thing and as a, as as usual right now with with the kind of style of podcast we're doing we're not licensed to play any of this music on the show but we will put a spotify playlist together where you can listen to pretty much most of these tracks i think the majority of them are on spotify so you can enjoy that and if you are uh, listening and you could we'll put the, the uh, spotify in the show notes if you're able to you know listen listen along while we while we talk about these scores as as we said last last time so so let's kick off then, Sean. What's what's your first one going to be? What would what would you uh, what would you like to launch? What what virus would you like to launch at us first? Well, should I do contagion first? Because we've just been talking about contagion. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so this was um, uh, a collaboration between director Steven Soderbergh and composer Cliff Martinez, who had worked together several times before. You think of things like Traffic and Solaris. And um, Martinez is generally uh, comes out of the the, the red the red hot Chili Peppers and has, has emerged as a kind of minimalist experimental um, composer. So some of his work is more engaging than others. I mean, I think, for example, what he did on the Nicholas Winding Refn film Only God Forgives was brilliant. Oh, that's a really interesting score. I know the film divides people because it's it's savagely violent and and unpleasant. But the, the the use of the electronics and the organ in that score I thought was very very interesting. But I think comparable to that is the score for contagion which i think is brilliant it's it's it was devastatingly effective in the film because what it does is um it it almost it's got these like pulsating little electronic beats that are in, that are that repeat in these kind of repetitive cells of, of sound and they gradually kind of increase in intensity on based on a given track that, that obviously accompanies a given scene and un, underpinning that what you have is a kind of bass heavy piano and I, I don't I don't really know the ins and outs of the 
you know, the textures. What I can assume from what Martinez is doing is that he's the piano has is the kind of organic element, the human element, and the electronics are the kind of viral element, and the two things are kind of butting heads and overlapping. And the the, the word I would use to describe the score is queasy. There's a kind of queasy unsettling air to it which is very very effective in the film there is this sense of just steadily percolating dreads and doom and you know given that it's a steven soderbergh film and it's it's it, it, it was praised by scientists for being exceptionally well researched and exceptionally realistic and as we can see now it's 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 it was the, the movie is incredibly realistic and it, it, it foreshadowed a lot of what we're going through now but it, it's a steven soderbergh movie it's a dialogue heavy movie as so many of his films are and the, the music, I think, has got a slightly tricky job of just augmenting when when so when the characters are explaining so much, when they have to explain so much because it's a complicated viral situation. The music, the music has to do a very careful job of not just reinforcing what we're understanding through the dialogue. The, the music has to be sort of getting at something underneath the fabric of of the film, and I think it does. I think what it does is it gets that sense of anxiety that everyone in the film is feeling the scientists the members of the public obviously you've got matt damon who plays matt the asymptom damon! <laughs> sorry <Damon. laughs> can't help it <laughs> but you've got him as the asymptomatic guy whose wife you know gwyneth his wife played by gwyneth paltrow is point zero so you've got that that story then you've got the scientists played by Lawrence fishburne and marion cotillard and jennifer ely and kate winslet you know but there there is a there is a consistent tone to the score which is no matter where you are on the social spectrum no matter what you your job is there is a steadily escalating sense of, of dread that's propelled by this you know electronic organic score by cliff martinez and i, I think i think it's, it's 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 a really good score i mean maybe not that pleasant to listen to on its own terms but not all film scores are designed like that um in terms of the film obviously and the, the main purpose of a film score is to serve its film as we've talked about that before it, in terms of, the, of its application in the film, it's fantastic. Well, I mean, I suppose the listenability factor is is, is a thing with these, all the th- scores, most of the scores we're going to talk about today, because they are, as you say, quite wedded to the to the actual visuals in a way that you wouldn't get with, you know, a sweeping John Williams, you know, or, or that kind of thing, with with a few exceptions. But uh, Contagion is, is definitely one of them. It's, it's, it's interesting to listen to, because you watched the film as well recently, and I, I haven't, as I say and I listen to the score, it's interesting to listen to it on its own terms because I think Dread is absolutely right. I think I always remember the the one, the, the track that stands out to me and stood out to me even before I, I went back and revisited is Bat and Pig towards the end, which is, I know you mentioned to me when we were talking about doing this episode, because that is sort of part of the crescendo of, of, the, of the end of the film, isn't it? And I remember, it's set to like a montage sequence, and I remember that that film... That that sequence and that was that was the music that stood with stuck with me after the film because it it felt like the tension was just racketing up up and up and up and up and it, and you come out of that film feeling like you are terrified of everything around you <laughs> yeah yeah you, <laughs> you, you, you don't you don't want to touch anything do you? I didn't want to touch anything I didn't want to touch the door coming out of the cinema I didn't want to touch the railing going down the stairs I didn't want <laughs> like that yeah. It's astonishing. It leaves you with with a with a real sense of oh my god, like we're all we are all going to die. And I think for for the, I think that wouldn't have been as effective in the film were it not for the music that Martinez puts out there. Definitely, I think it absolutely contributes to why you come out of Contagion terrified of everything, 
And it really, what they should have done is inject contagion into our eyeballs every week <laughs> for the last 10 years. So we didn't remember, we didn't forget it because everyone forgot about it. And what it actually did was tell us what was going to happen in 10 years. <laughs> on, on the subject of that last track, which accompanies the, the final scene of the film, I think you were absolutely right about that. I think also it, it, in terms of the music also serves the non-linear nature of the storytelling. I think this is very, very important. The movie starts on day two. The movie you don't you don't begin the movie by learning what the what the inception point of the virus was only in the very last scene of the movie do you go back to day one and discover how Gwyneth Paltrow got it so that's a very very clever structural device by Steven Soderbergh because by learning that at the end you're denied any kind of sense of catharsis in a way you're denied any kind of sense of release you're left on this kind of like tent hook of like oh my god that's really scary that's really scary. And I think that the, the music doesn't resolve either. The music kind of builds tension and then that's it. That's the end of the album for the final scene in the movie that chronologically would have come at the beginning ordinarily, which I think is just, it's a, it's a fabulous device. I mean, Steven Soderbergh is, is very, very famous for that experimental approach to narrative. And I think Cliff Martinez is, is right there with him. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, where do you think this film itself sort of sits in Steven Soderbergh's work i mean I, I he's done a lot of really great films over the years but i, I kind of think like maybe contagion is a bit underrated you know not just because of, of covid19 but just generally i think it's always been a little bit underrated yeah i mean i, I remember thinking at the time I, I was i was impressed with it but i remember thinking well okay it's in, in, in the sign of the times i mean i think it came out in october 2011 and at the time i, I accepted it as a as a pot boiler an intelligently handled pot boiler because it's steven soderbergh steven soderbergh doesn't make stupid films and i thought well okay you know in by the standards of of what i would expect from this director you know clearly it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a well-researched albeit fantastical construct fast forward 10 years later it's it's probably become his most relevant film (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is really quite astonishing ironically yeah (laughs) um but it's it's a good it's a damn good one and it's a good place to start i think so yeah i mean i think i think of all the scores we're talking about it's definitely one of the best i would say um for and and a chief pandemic cinema sort of uh score to begin with so i've got to make a confession i've gone a little bit off piste with most of my choices because and i don't mean this in in any kind of negative towards you sean but as soon as i said pandemic scores you rattled through at least four that i would have picked (laughs) straight away (laughs) sorry about that no it's like it's (laughs) fine because we're doing we're going to talk about them um so i went oh okay so what is left really and and there are plenty of films to do you know about pandemics out there you know over the years different varying types of pandemics and as i say they're not all contagion style that really do chime with what is happening right now to us they are various uh, and, and and different so i thought right okay i'm gonna go i'm gonna go and listen to scores for films i haven't necessarily seen and 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 some of these films lots of you listening will have seen over the years because some of them my choices go back a bit further so people will know these films better than me so i i'm I'm listening to the scores quite cold in some senses but the first one i thought i'd pick was something you you mentioned which i thought was really interesting to go and listen to which is the mask of the red death by uh, a composer called david lee and this is based on the uh, roger corman version of the Edgar Allan Poe story of the same name which it came out in 1964 the Corman film starring Vincent Price uh, about a uh, a plague that sort of ripples through medieval Italy and there's a lot of, of of quite strange sort of mystical stuff in there from what I from what I 
uh, read about it, but I haven't seen The Mask of the Red Death, but I did go and listen to the score. And I, I wasn't familiar with David Lee, and I don't know if you are, Sean, uh, actually. But, no, I'm not. Um, I'm not at all, actually. No. Well, yeah, and he's not, he's not someone that I'd, I'd actually come across as a, as a composer. But uh, and he's, according to Wikipedia, he's still alive. He's like 93. Um, he's a, a jazz pianist as well as an orchestra leader as well as a film composer. And uh, he, uh, he he scored quite a few uh, early episodes of The Avengers. So obviously not the Marvel one, the uh, the British <laughs> kitsch sort of 1960s film. So he's got quite a, a jazzy sensibility. But it doesn't that doesn't quite come across in the mask of the red death it's it's not particularly there, there is a score that is quite jazzy surprisingly jazzy sort of later on that we'll be talking about and surprisingly funky but the mask of the red death is far more i i found it to be and did you get a chance to listen to this sean by by any chance yeah i did i think i should the important thing to point out is i've not seen the film either uh, i'm aware of it i'm aware that vincent price is in it and it's one of the early landmark uh, roger corman movies and it's probably the landmark edgar Allan poe adaptation it's probably the one that people cite in terms of like, this is what you can do with with a poe story i mean i have read the story the story is fantastic it's been as with all posts so it's brilliantly imaginative very very scary um very ahead of its time the idea that people you know shut themselves off from the world and then death manages to get in with them which is very very prescient as well we we talked about you know contagion being prescient you know you think about what edgar Allan poe was writing about with the mask of the red death the idea that you know you think you can hide yourself away from the world but there might be a rogue element that will get in there <laughs> with you and, and yeah. disrupt your plans like that is this and you know the quote the famous quote the mask of the red death held sway overall it's, it's a really really fabulous story so i'm not familiar with the film i, I did listen to the score and I, I have to say i was really impressed with it it reminded me in a lot of ways which is probably not all that surprising given you know it's around the same time it reminded me a lot of what james bernard was doing with the hammer scores you've got that sense of portent but i think as the score goes on what it does what david lee's music does brilliantly and again having having not seen the film i can only make assumptions about this it's got a kind of almost whimsical renaissance air to it yeah 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 yeah. which i i imagine that what that's doing is that's representing the decadence of because it's it's, it's the the story and the film have got a period setting and that that represents the decadence of the people who have retreated indoors who are holding this mask ball you know in their ignorance thinking okay we can we can sit this out and i love the use of the woodwind and the tambourine to give that slight sense of you know that again that renaissance there and then contrasted with that you've got these very heavy trombones and tubers which represent the vincent price character and you've got that kind of invasive sense of menace again it's appropriately enough you know given the invasive nature of the viral threat the the, the way the music goes from whimsy to menacing is appropriately invasive i think it's I, i'm not being familiar with the score at all i thought it was very very impressive i loved it you've put that Way better than I could have, to be fair, because I was thinking along some similar lines there in terms of, like you say, the Renaissance feel, the the feeling of uh, that contrast between the, you know, the norm of, you know, that kind of flighty sort of sense of, of nobility and then this terror basically and, and like you say the hammer the hammer score is definitely definitely reminded of that kind of era of score where he, there is a lot as you say again you use the word really well portent that kind of fear that is rippling underneath and you know appropriately for a, for a horror film of this you know starring vincent price as well of this era which is and this was the seventh of eight corman films that were based on the work of, of edgar Allan poe which is which is interesting so i don't know if david lee scored more of those but it 
but Cor- I didn't know. I didn't realize Corman made that many Poe adaptations. Really, um, he obviously had an affinity for, for his yeah. writing, didn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, obviously, Edgar Allan Poe wrote this in 1842, so he was slightly ahead of the curve with pandemics. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Although there is there is this thing going around, isn't it? As soon as I, I work in schools, and as soon as um, coronavirus started to become a thing, like at the start of the year, a lot of my students, you know, you, you remember what it's like being a teenager. You 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 assume every conspiracy theory is real, you know, at that age. <laughs> and as soon as they as soon as they heard about this, they're like, "Sir, there's a there's a dead. The Chinese have made a deadly virus." I said, "They haven't made a deadly virus," you know. So <laughs> later on, I was saying, "You sound like Trump," <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, they yeah. were like, oh, there's a deadly virus, sir. There's deadly viruses. Every hundred years, every hundred years, there's a virus in, 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 that kills us off. And, and I, I went, I said, don't be ridiculous. And then I went, actually, 1918. And there was one in about 1820 as yeah. well. <laughs> and, I went, and, and then I suppose you can trace it back, couldn't you? I mean, I don't know when the bubonic plague was. Could that have been like 1318 or, or something? I, oh, I don't maybe, know. I'm not a historian, I, but... <laughs> I don't know. I, I think the Black Death, I think it falls down at the Black Death. And I, <laughs> the theory I goes away. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I was like, oh. And then I went, I went no, you're, you're in your late 30s. You don't do this. There are no conspiracy theories. It is not. Anyway, um, but it made me laugh. Maybe Edgar Allan Poe remembered that pandemic. But um, but yeah, so The Mask of the Red Dead, I, I definitely made me want to go and see the film, which is one that obviously, you know, loads of people have seen and uh, is a bit of a, a black spot in my filmography. But um What's your next one then, Sean? Is this a black spot in your filmography or are you familiar with this one? Well, I was going to do Outbreak by James Newton Howard because I kind of thought we, you know, th- th- this is probably the most conventional. Well, actually, um, we've got another one later on, which is slightly conventional, but this this is almost certainly one of the most conventional that we're going to talk about today. So Outbreak by James Newton Howard. So, I mean, in, in terms, I mean, we're talking about, you know, people re-engaging with pandemic films during lockdown. This seems to be one of the films that people have re-engaged with. Unsurprisingly, it's a glossy all-star um, mid-90s Wolfgang Peterson movie about an Ebola-like virus that is transmitted by a monkey that's taken from Africa and then gets loose in a Californian coastal town and then all of a sudden everyone starts getting infected and it's about, right, we need to lock down the area otherwise the whole of America is going to be brought to its knees. Funny that, isn't it? No. Um, so, um, mm. yeah, it's funny they got there in 1995 with this story. And I mean, what you've got is... Um, is Dustin Hoffman, um, who, you know, Dustin Hoffman, like, chewing the scenery up as the main, like, sort of army, army guy, you know, who, um, who butts heads with his, you know, former friend, now superior Morgan Freeman, who is in thrall to the evil chin-stroking military commander played by <laughs> Donald Sutherland in one of the more ridiculous... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, yeah. the the movie isn't... I mean, it's a Wolfgang Peterson movie. It's not subtle. No. Um, and the, the more it goes on, the less subtle it gets. When when you get into into set pieces involving um, helicopters, like helicopter chases, and you know people running people running into rooms and kind of throwing papers down, you go, you gotta sort this out now. And it's kind of <laughs> it's it's it's, it's, not, it's not a sober film. Let's be honest, no. it is it is it is an entertaining one. And just and the the scene the scene where um, Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, remember him uh, where Cuba Gooding Jr. used to where be in movies. Go? Yeah, I yeah. know exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I lament the fact we don't get him in films anymore. There's, there's the scene where they they finally do track down the monkey in California, and then they've got to get the um, the girl whose house it is to try and draw the monkey out. And there's that sort of standoff where it's like, oh, I've got I've got I've got the gun with the tranquilizer dart, but I could hit the girl, and I could. <laughs> 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 there's, a, there's a lot of a lot of like just just ridiculous moments. Yeah, but I think. Um, 
And the, the, the irony being that the, the, the sillier the film gets, the more entertaining James Newton Howard's score gets. Yeah, <laughs> Because obviously, as, as the action... James Newton Howard is a fabulous composer. We've, we've talked about him before. Um, he's, he's, he's a very chameleonic composer. He adapts to lots and lots of different genres, and he's done so many fabulous scores. You think of his, his work for M. Night Shyamalan, like The Sixth Sense, The Village, Unbreakable. You think of the big sweeping scores that he's done, like Wyatt Earp. He's done more kind of minimalist scores like Snow Falling on Cedars. Um, he's done um, pastiche music in Restoration, which is one of my favourite scores of his. The, I mean, he's also a brilliant action composer, as as is heard in the likes of um, King Kong, the Peter Jackson film. So in this, I have to say, I don't know if, if Outbreak is one of Newton Howard's most distinguished scores. and it, for, the, for the most part, it, it, again, it works effectively enough in the film but it's a score of two halves. The first half of the movie, which is the relatively more sober half, you've got these kind of, well, there is an African texture to the percussion and the use of, 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 of various instruments, which suggests the, the virus, I think it's called the Mataba virus because of where it comes from in in Africa. And that you've got that sense of steadily encroaching menace and you've got these kind of abstract textures um, which what Newton Howard then does is he then brings those viral textures, those that, which suggest uh, the African landscape into the American scenes to suggest that, that, OK, something from another country has invaded this country, which is which is an effective device. But I think really um, it's the action sequences that are just spectacularly exciting. You've got there's there's a couple of tracks towards the end called um, uh, a little resistance and they're coming which are for the for the helicopter chase scenes and the the full force i think it was the hollywood studio symphony that that james newton howard used for this i might be wrong about that but the you can hear the the the, the brass section getting an astonishing workout in this um and just his ability to build tension um even, even though what's going on is is completely daft it shows that what what film music can do is even in the midst of daft sequences the the music can can build that sense of sincerity and that sense of emotional engagement um and it can help the scene resonate more and uh, just the, the the action tracks are absolute belters i believe a little resistance might have been used in a lot of tra- trailers uh, throughout the 1990s because obviously what they used to do is they used to use film music from earlier films and apply them to trailers for later films so you don't really get that but sometimes you get that that used to be a real thing throughout the 90s but it shows what a signature style james newton howard has i mean it's so explosively exciting that obviously someone here heard the score for outbreak and thought wow that that will do very well to promote our trailer in this film over here I mean, the, the 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 moment about three quarters of the way through their coming, where you've got the standoff between Cuba Gooding Jr. and Dustin Hoffman in the helicopter, and then the bomber that's coming over. Because the idea is that Donald Sutherland is the fiendish fiendish military guy wants to basically obliterate the entire area where the virus is to basically sort of cover it up, and yet he's also he also wants to harness it and use it for his own ends. But he wants to remove any evidence that the virus was ever there. And there's this there's a helicopter sort of bomber standoff. <laughs> um and um you know you, you do you do kind of expect dustin hoffman to do the raymond uh-oh uh-oh but he doesn't do that sadly um, it's um then, but the, the score is the score is brilliant um i mean if you listen to if you listen to yeah. that track on its own you'd be forgiven <clears throat> for thinking it's not a viral pandemic score it is just a, a ripping blockbuster action score but that's that's only part of the part of the fabric of it i think yeah you, you, absolutely and outbreak was one of those he's one of those films that just 
screams mid 90s cinema to me like 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 alongside crimson tide the rock you know (laughs) dialed with a vengeance i grew up watching these films on video when i was a kid and i've seen outbreak a few times it's been quite a long time since i watched outbreak but it's always it's always been a particularly silly favorite because when you line it up with something like contagion like contagion actually tries to get to the nub of what this could be outbreak is a big daft Hollywood, you know, blockbuster, like you say, for all these reasons. There was an excellent article that was written. I can't remember who did it. I read it very recently. It was about if it was talking about Outbreak specifically. It said, what well, Outbreak perpetuates the Hollywood saviour myth, the idea that yeah. one person can save the world, which I think you're absolutely right. There were a lot of movies like this in the 1990s. I mean, the 1990s was the era of the glossy, high-concept, all-star action movie. You don't really get a lot of those anymore. I mean, I suppose what the, those films have now been supplanted by comic book movies to an extent. But yeah, the idea that... The, the idea of pr- primarily the white saviour character played by Dustin Hoffman... And I think Newton Howard School very much plays, it, it does its job. It plays right into that mythology, absolutely. I mean, it, it serves the film brilliantly. The, the score in places really reminded me of The Fugitive as well, which James mm. Newton Howard did, which has, had similar uh, you know, points in it. I mean, The Fugitive, I think, is definitely a better film. I think that's just a really great movie, generally. But, I th- but yeah, you know, Wolfgang Peterson makes these big daft kind of i mean i watched the perfect storm recently and that is as cheesy as hollywood films come uh, and uh you know after this he does uh air force one where he teams up with jerry goldsmith and that that is a great film that a uh, great a great scoring for, for complete silliness and again you know a white savior in you know harrison ford's gruff president i'm gonna i'm gonna kill you gary oldman get off um, my plane get off my plane <laughs> yeah but but i love these films i grew up with these films and i lap them up as as, and i'm aware of the context for them but yeah outbreak is 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 a really rollicking score it's a lot of fun like you say it doesn't have to necessarily be tethered to a pandemic it doesn't necessarily bring out that fear factor in you um but it's 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 a rollicking score it's definitely among i I would say one of james newton howard's most most fun and rompy sort of enjoyable scores so yeah i always get a lot out of this so for my next one i am going for another older score for another film I haven't seen, but one that is that I should have watched for this really, and I, I, I'd, I'd be lying if I said the reason that I haven't is because I've been snowed under with work. The reason I haven't is because I've been playing too much Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and, and <laughs> I'm going to be completely honest with you all. <laughs> and this is the Andromeda Strain from 1971, based on the Michael Crichton story, directed by uh, Robert Wise, and it's from Crichton's 1969 novel and it's about a a deadly alien virus an organism of extraterrestrial origin uh, and a group of scientists are investigating it and it's it's probably one of those it's one of those films I think and the score is by a composer called uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his name probably Gil Mele who again was another jazz musician for so many jazz musicians who turn out to be film composers and uh, he he died in 2004 and it's a, it's again an, another one of those films i think the andromeda strain that is memorable less for the for being a particularly brilliant movie but but for some of the visual and strides into science fiction that at that time were less prevalent 
And, you know, it's got special effects by Douglas Trumbull, who obviously had done 2001 and things like that. And there's split screen in this film. And it's a film, as I, as I say, it's a film I haven't seen. And it's sitting on my shelf. I've got the, the lovely Blu-ray with all the extras and everything like that. It's sitting on my shelf, ready to watch. And I think I have seen clips of it over the years. But Melee's score, and I don't know if you've seen it, Sean, but Melee's score is is much more... It's not a score that you can listen to and throw on. It's much. It's very tethered to the visuals. It's very synthetic in many places. It, it does, I think, quite quite well encapsulate this idea of something alien, of something strange, of something... I, I, I almost felt almost crystalline about the way he, he projects this score. I found it really interesting, and it's, 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 it's not a casual listen kind of piece of music, but I think it... From from you know from what I understand of the film, I imagine it works very well in terms of in terms of how they they come together. But I don't know. Have you seen the film or listened to the score, Sean? I have. I have to confess, I haven't seen the film. I I did read the book. I went through a spate of ah, okay. reading. I went through a spate of reading Michael Crichton books. You know, you know when you go through that teenage phase and you kind of yeah. alight on an author. I mean, because Michael Crichton does like page turners that are also kind of you know you mentioned that kind of that desire for everything to be a conspiracy when you're a teenager. And Michael Crichton plays a lot into that with things like you know this and, and Jurassic Park and everything. So I have read the book. I've not seen the film. Uh, the score I did listen to, and yeah, it's 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 not meant for isolated viewing unless you're in a particularly of an ex- particularly experimental avant avant garde mode. But it's very very impressive. I was looking at I was looking it up because I I not I was not familiar with the score, having not seen the film, and I wasn't familiar with the composer either. And I was looking up all electronic scores because apparently this is an, an entirely electronic score, which I suppose ties into a lot of developments that was going on in film music in in the early 70s you think of things like a clockwork orange uh, wendy carlos uh, obviously and then going back before that you have um doctor who uh, on on television but then i i looked up like what was what's generally um, considered to be the very first all electronic film score and a lot of people seem to suggest it's forbidden planet from the 1950s um, so clearly what you had from the 1950s onwards was an in- increasingly sophisticated electronic synthesizer equipment that could convey cinematic narratives. And Jerry Goldsmith would then capitalise on this throughout, you know, from the probably like the 70s through the 80s and then into the 90s. He would then advance that language. But I thought this score, what, what, from what I heard of it, it's it's very... I mean, it, the way that it completely throws any kind of humanity to the wind and it uses the electronics to suggest something very, very unpleasant and, well, alien, like you use the word alien. Now, that's exactly right. It's 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 completely otherworldly and very, very bold. I mean, even even by, I mean, nowadays, you know, an, an electronic score, nowadays we kind of take that, that conceit for granted, the idea that a composer could do in a score electronically. This must have been remarkably groundbreaking for its time. I think Robert Wise, like we were talking about, Wolfgang Peterson, who we were talking about earlier, got terrific scores out of his composers. And I think Robert Wise did the same as well. I mean, he, he'd worked with, funnily enough, he'd worked with Jerry Goldsmith a few years before this on the Sand Pebbles, which is one of Jerry Goldsmith's greatest scores. But you know, this is in a completely different realm to the Sand Pebbles because it's a completely different kind of narrative. It's abstract, it's avant-garde, it's electronic, it's synthesised, it's weird. Not one for casual consumption, but I suppose if one was 
interested to know how a composer could represent the again here is the word the invasive nature of a virus and not just a virus but a virus that comes from somewhere else in the galaxy this would seem to be a, a, a brilliant way of doing it yeah I, I agree and it's funny you should mention jerry goldsmith because he, he of course goes on to score i don't know if it's robert wise's next film but late in the at the end of the 70s he scores uh, star trek the motion picture which robert wise directs which is my favorite score of all time i've probably mentioned that on this podcast and he's just a beautiful piece of work, very listenable outside of the movie. So, you know, and, and he could you know, he could have gone for Gil Mele to provide a very sort of, you know, alien synthetic orchestra, you know, electronic score for the motion picture because that's all about this, you know, alien intelligence that comes back to Earth after centuries. But he doesn't. He chooses a very sweeping. So it's interesting how he didn't go with Goldsmith for this, and he wanted something more. Maybe it's because the story, by definition, is is a scarier approach to like an alien virus you know this idea of of something completely unknowable an organism and and so that's something that would then be recurring a lot of fiction in subsequent decades you know there's lots of alien viruses floating about there's one in um a, 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 to be honest a film that i probably could have got away with covering in this is the x-files film which is mm. all about an alien virus <laughs> yeah that's uh, true and i probably i probably should mention that really it should be one of my choices i guess but um yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting piece. Not that listenable outside of uh, of the film, but uh, it's definitely made me want to get that film off the Blu-ray. I'll get that Blu-ray off the shelf. So, I think you know. j- just just to, on on the Star Trek point, I think that's really interesting. I think yeah, you're right. I think the Andromeda Strain is about paranoia and it's about isolation and it's about alienness. Whereas I think that. Star Trek, by its very nature, has a kind of romanticism to it. It has a kind of optimism to it. And I do wonder whether maybe that's why Robert Wise alighted again on Goldsmith for that, because Goldsmith was able to get that. He was a a composer so brilliant at getting that sense of sweep, that sense of of a voyage, uh, which is what that film demanded. But also, I think what Goldsmith... Goldsmith could do all electronic scores and he did do that, but Goldsmith was magnificent at crisscrossing the boundary between organic and synthetic in the course of one score, which is what he did in in um in Star Trek thinking he used the blaster beam. And I just think that maybe it was Goldsmith's sophistication in that and how that could be applied to the Star Trek narrative that made Robert Wise choose him, perhaps. It's hard to say, but it's 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 very it's very interesting and uh, that you know, it's interesting how Wise you know goes for different scores, covering not massively dissimilar territory, I guess. But you know, it, it's I'll find out when I actually watch the Andromeda Strain when I can tear myself away from Assassin's Creed. But it will happen eventually. <laughs> so, what are you going for your number three then, Sean? So I was going to go for It Comes at Night uh, by Brian McComber, the um, composer who I'm not familiar with, but I I, I have seen the film um, a few times. The film is fantastic. Very, very creepy, very scary. It's um, directed by um, Trey Edward Schultz, who um, who I interviewed um, last year for his most recent film, Waves, which is, that's not a viral pandemic movie. But if anyone is looking for a, a, a sweeping, emotional um, family drama that's told in an incredibly bold and arresting way, go and watch Waves. It's a, it's a fabulous film and he was a lovely, lovely person to speak to. So that this, it comes at night, is completely different to Waves. This is a, a claustrophobic story of a um, family who have isolated in a house in a forest and they have isolated apparently from some kind of contagion that is lurking in the wider world um, beyond their door and they have a very, very strict pattern of behaviour which is there is only one mode of entry and exit into the house which is through a red door. That is the only way they can get in. They've boarded up all the windows 
they've retreated um, from something that appears to have devastated the wider world. But the brilliant thing about the movie is it doesn't really show you really anything of what's happened in the wide world. Everything you're seeing is through the prism of this one family and their interpretation of what they think has happened. So automatically you think, okay, are we dealing with a situation that maybe is more nuanced than it seems you know what what is what is the nature of the threat and the movie doesn't ever explain that what what the movie does it suggests that the threat classic pandemic um narrative it suggests that the threat comes from within and um for that reason it, it's very claustrophobic and very scary and when this central family bring in they make the mistake of rescuing and bringing in another family from from the outside things then steadily start to go very very wrong and i think the um i mean the, the this was on the, the posters when the film came out about three years ago i think the use of the red door down the end of the corridor which is basically the divide between life and death as far as these people are concerned the the, the, the shot of the red door being slightly ajar when it's not supposed to be just becomes one of the most like terrifying um images and I, I should point out that this, this film also stars um uh kelvin harrison jr who i also interviewed he was also in waves he's a regular collaborator with trader joe's a lovely 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 person and he gives a fantastic performance in in both films so the score again not a score that's necessarily meant to be listened to outside the context of the film it's incredibly astringent and uncomfortable as as it's meant to be i, I was reminded Maybe it doesn't owe so much to film music as to the sort of modernist classical masters you think like Ligeti, Penderecki, Bartok. You know, the, the, think of, for example, some of the pieces of music that Stanley Kubrick used in The Shining. It owes more to those kind of contemporary modernist classical composers in terms of their use of of tone and texture and the the use of the strings to convey a sense of escalating terror like the fact that it never really lets you sit still I, mean, I suppose i was also reminded when i was listening to it of mika levy's score for under the skin which had that kind of grinding like eerie sort of nerve jangling approach but again primarily through the string section although that did go electronic at some points um yeah i think that um Brian McComber's score in in terms of in the film it works gangbusters it, it's very very effective you know you have to be pretty brave to listen to it outside the movie I, I did and I was kind of like right okay I don't really want to listen to that again <laughs> on its own yeah. terms but I mean have you have you have you seen this film yeah I, I went to see it at the cinema because I remember it being touted as the big new thing you know uh, I think when did it come out 2017 was it yeah I think, I think so yeah and so it wasn't long after Get Out I think I think Get Out was slightly earlier that year, and it was being touted as the big new terrifying horror movie, and it didn't. It wasn't really that. I feel like it kind of was. I mean, if I remember, the trailer tried to up the ante in terms of that as well, and it wasn't that kind of film. And I was a bit wrong-footed by it, if I'm honest. I came out of it thinking it was quite impressive, but it wasn't really the film I went in. I went in to, to see, and I think the marketing sort of tried to. To, to pull you in on a false, which is what they do all the time, isn't it? They try and lie to you to get you into the cinema. Yeah, yeah. And I would have gone anyway because I found, you know, I'm, I, I like Joel Edgerton. I like the, the concept was interesting, but I feel like it was it was far it was a far quieter sort of character piece than I than I really thought it would be, and I, I was I was quite surprised by that. But I did enjoy it. I found McCumber's score when I listened to it 
it it re- it found it felt very and you've described it brilliantly really but I, it, to me it felt very sort of background and underneath in terms of a solo lo- watch solo listen it plays it plays to a very measured sort of tone and then you know like you say in the red door it sort of it sort of builds to you know quite a, 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 a crescendo in some senses but it's 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 not it's not the kind of score that stands out and I don't mean that in a bad way I mean it in a way that it, it feels like it is tethered well to the kind of film that Trey Edward Schultz makes yeah I, th- I think yeah that that's spot on that is I suppose that there there is um I mean I suppose just to address the the actual viral nature of the film I mean the, the film begins with um the shot a shot of a body being burned and that that is pretty much as much content and then the, the main characters that are all have suit protective suits on and you've got this kind of like buzzy sort of tormented soundtrack which again is, is meant to get under your skin and is meant to suggest something that's unhealthy and and potentially dangerous that that's as much context as you get there are bits of music that accompany um some very very nightmarish vision sequences there are there are there, there are some very for my money some very very scary sequences involving people you know who who appear to manifest it's it's, an, it's a nightmare sequence with like blood coming out of their eyes and coming out of their mouths and everything but the reason why those scenes appear is because it, it's reinforcing the paranoia of the characters, but you don't quite know, are these characters being paranoid or is there a genuine threat? I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about the marketing of the film, actually, I think, because it came from uh, A24 who marketed uh, The Witch and uh, A24 have emerged as the kind of saviors of the independent horror boom. They've, they've done a lot of extraordinary films over the last few years and I, I do think you're right. I think that um, I mean I think the the witch was also the witch was also emphasised as being more of a jump bang you know jump out of your seat horror movie than it was. I mean the witch was a fabulous film, but it wasn't it wasn't scary in the way that they marketed it. And similarly, I think you're right. This this film isn't scary in the way that they perhaps sold you on. It it is about paranoia. It's about if you're in an enclosed environment with a group of people what happens when one person makes makes a certain decision that compromises everybody else which is you know very very appropriate given the, yeah. the situation the state that the world is in at the moment yeah, for sure in terms of yeah people making choices in terms of where they go and who they see and what they do 100 percent. I, I i did enjoy it i did i did find it quite compelling but it, yeah it, it was because I do like those kind of films, you know. I love The Witch for the fact it was understated in many ways, but I don't think the score stood out to me. Like I remember Mark Corvin's score for The Witch really sort of arresting me and being quite terrifying. Didn't get that from this, but I, I, that's not a negative. I think it does work well, and I think it fits the tone of a of a piece that yeah won't necessarily be sold to you in the in the way it actually is. And I think I think I think it's a good one, and it, it sort of. Didn't quite have the explosive effect, I think, that people thought it would. It comes at night, but it's definitely one going worth checking out. I would say this isn't necessarily relevant to to it comes at night. But if I mean, if you're looking, if anyone is feeling a little bit despondent at the moment, and people want a great soundtrack, as in a curated soundtrack of songs, go and check out the soundtrack for Waves because it is it is brilliant. There there is so much variety on that. On that, you've got. Um, Dinah Washington, Kanye West, uh, lots and lots of very, very interesting songs on that. And it's it's a great kind of motivational, kind of pulsating soundtrack on that. Nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I need to watch Waves, to be honest, but I will I will go and, uh, and check that out for sure. And I would say as well, you mentioned A24, and you're absolutely right about that 
production house and stuff. I, there's a podcast, the A24 podcast, which is uh, ran by a friend of mine called Lee Hutchison uh, for another network, but it's it's well worth going and checking out. He interviews, he's interviewed trade with Schultz on there. He's, he gets, he, he's got a good relationship with A24 now that he gets a lot of good interviews and, and he speaks to the stars and the, and the directors and stuff. It's a really good podcast. It's worth checking out. The A24 Project, I think it's called. So yeah, that's one to go and and, uh, and look. So free advertising there, Lee. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, my next one is that you're going to put a smile on your face, Sean, because uh, we're going back to the master, Jerry Goldsmith, for... 1976 is the Cassandra Crossing, directed by George uh, Cosmatos, uh, which was uh, made by back backed by people like Lou Grade and uh, the producer Carlo Ponti from Italy. And it's a very and I again recurring theme in this episode. It's a film I haven't seen, but it's a big sort of 70s disaster thriller that happens to be about uh, a Swedish terrorist who's infected with uh, a sort of a mnemonic plague who infects a group of train passengers as they head uh, across a, a, a derelict arch bridge, which is uh, the Kazundrov Bridge, which is also known as the Cassandra Crossing, hence the name of the film. Can you say that bit again? That, 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 there, was, there was a lovely twang on that. The Kassandrov Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was a Look, mix of Russian and Brummie. <laughs> a r- Brummie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There you go. There's a whole sub-language we invented yeah. there. So, I mean, like I say, I haven't seen this film. It's got a big, starry sort of 70s cast. You know, Sophia Loren, Richard Harris, Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, uh, Martin Sheen, O.J. Simpson. Uh, moving swiftly past him. <laughs> anyway. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's, it feels like it's in the vein of those kind of films, you know, back in the day. Things like The Tower and Inferno and, and The Poseidon Adventure and that kind of stuff. But, obviously, it's got a, it's got a, a plague at the centre of it. And, and, and this one, I think, is, it, it, it is played by Goldsmith as much more of an action-adventure, rip-roaring kind of piece of work. You know, I, it, I think, in a way, in some ways, you mentioned The Sand Pebbles earlier, Sean. I think, in a way, it was sort of along a little bit more of those kind of lines i would say you know something a little bit more rowdy and fun and boisterous i guess and i i I, you know and goldsmith obviously could do all kinds of different things and while i've not really this film hasn't really you know stood the test of time i think in 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 being massively in the public consciousness but i did quite enjoy the score i thought it was quite a bit quite a lot of fun I mean, as, as you know, I've, I've bored you enough with this before. I, I very rarely speak. <laughs> out, I, I very rarely speak out against Jerry Goldsmith. I think he was the greatest film composer of all time, and I think even when he was working on not sort of twaddle like this, he he, he, he just kind of <laughs> he brought his a, he brought his a game. I love that word twaddle. I think it's, it's really a good brilliant. Word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know. It, it, Jerry Goldsmith was able to bring an astonishing amount to all of his projects, regardless of the quality of the script or the or the finished product. He he always ploughed one hundred and ten percent into it. And that's the, that's the mark of a true professional film composer. That when they can look past the garbage that they're scoring and actually put a lot of effort into the music. And I think, I mean, this is a film, I have seen this film like years ago. All I remember, um, spoiler alert, people, is that it actually ends on a, on a very very bleak note with the train actually going off the off the bridge the bridge blows God. up um yeah sorry I, I i'm sorry i've just spoiled it for you there but um yeah no one's gonna watch it <laughs> it is, it is yeah. on youtube if anyone really wants to go and watch it but yeah it's not gonna happen 
Yeah, and, it, and it, the, the, the train does <laughs> the, the bridge does actually blow up. The Cassandra Crossing blows up, and the train actually goes off the bridge. You think, well, okay. I mean, the movie is cheesy, and it's a bit it's a B movie with A list actors in it, but at least it had the guts to actually end in that way. But yeah, Goldsmith's score. I think is very much there are a lot of kind of like sort of Euro pop like thriller scores going on in the mid 70s think of like Ennio Morricone was doing a lot of things like this at the time maybe John Barry as well um the idea of them the main theme has got this kind of European like sort of jazzy romanticism to it which obviously is as as you described the story there is entirely appropriate for the context of the story um and the way that goldsmith takes that kind of slightly lounge jazz like sort of chilled main theme which to all intents and purposes is is very pleasant and then warps it and distorts it particularly in the action sequence i mean no no one wrote action music like jerry goldsmith he was the best at it i know we praised james newton howard earlier but you know all film composers owe their action music styles jerry goldsmith frankly and there's there's a there's a track called um helicopter rescue which again does that thing that goldsmith does brilliantly which is there are intervals and time signature changes and an emphasis on what goldsmith was very good at doing was building little um cells like little repetitive little bursts of notes which would then build and build and build throughout the course of a particular track and there's a lot of action music on this score that does that brilliantly it's not a goldsmith score that i'm particularly familiar with but I think what it does show is that there is there is more than one way to score a pandemic movie. And I think in this instance, he scored it as a sort of ripping like Euro action adventure movie. And um, I mean, we should point out that, that George Cosmatos worked with um, Goldsmith again on um, Rambo First Blood Part 2. Um, maybe on another film after that as well. And First Blood Part 2 is, is one of the you know one of the best action scores of the 80s. But I think that I mean, I'm not sure in terms of the Cassandra Crossing score, I'm not sure how much Goldsmith actually emphasises the pandemic side of it. I mean, to be honest, the film is more occupied with sensation and it's more occupied with heroics. So I'm not sure if there was much room for Goldsmith to actually capture that. It's more a sense of the of the situation in which the pandemic is occurring. Like, What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think... I think that's it. I think it's like I say, I haven't seen the film, but I think from what from what I have read about it and things like that, it's it's not it's not about it's not about a pandemic as much as it's about a, a lethal virus that you know people are trying to stop. You know, and and I, sp- I suppose that that's that's the difference. This one's taking a little bit more of a liberty, I suppose, with the the idea of this in that. Uh, it, it's all about the disaster element of, you know, a train, glamorous passengers, you know, a uh, threat to, to all of that. So appropriately, Goldsmith scores it like a romp. And I, th- I think that's that's the best way to approach it, really. So uh, it's not going to be a film that, that stands up as, as one of those great sort of pandemic films. But it does show, you know, the, the range of, of how you can tell a story about a killer virus, I suppose. And that's that's part of the fun of it, really. And even even a, a, a Goldsmith score that isn't one of his greatest and one of his most famous is still damn good. You know, it's still one of those. It, it you put it you put this in a list of film uh, of scores to films that are probably a little bit duff. You know, great scores to films that are a bit rubbish. Um, or twaddle. Uh, I think we need, we need to, uh, <laughs> great scores for twaddle. I think. <laughs> we need to bring that I mean, back. when even when when Goldsmith was on autopilot, he was better than most composers in their prime. Yeah, that's that's how good exactly. that's how good he was. Uh, just, yeah. I mean, his absence in film scoring 
is really, really profoundly felt at the moment. Just think of what he could have done with so many films that have come out in the last 20 years because he passed away in 2004. Just think what he could have done with, say, some of the Marvel films. Just, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a conversation for another yeah. time. Yeah, oh, if only, if only. Oh, that's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's, that's, my, that's my next one. What about yours, Sean? What are you going to pick for your number four? Um, so I'm, I'm cheating a little bit. I'm going to combine um, two and one. So 28 um, days and 28 weeks later, both by John Murphy. So, yeah, I suppose when people think of contemporary viral, viral movies, contemporary pandemic movies, these films will be front and centre, unsurprisingly. It's often... The, the, the phrase zombie movie is often incorrectly attributed to these films. They're not zombie movies because the people that are infected don't die. They just turn into um, red-eyed, blood-vomiting, terrifying maniacs. I suppose one might think of... Um, there was that George Romero film, wasn't there, from the 1970s, The Crazies. It might owe a little bit oh, more. Oh, yeah. Which was remade. It actually got a pretty decent remake, actually, about 10 years ago. But, yeah, I, I think that I remember... Um, well, 28 Days Later, I watched it on DVD. And I remember it made a huge impact at the time for the idea of the the, the, the fleet-footed non-zombie, the idea that, the, that people who have been affected don't just shuffle their way towards you. They run after you. They run after you. They're going to get you. They're going to vomit blood all over you, and then you're going to turn into one. I mean, that is genuinely, genuinely frightening. And obviously, the, but also that the first film was directed by Danny Boyle, and the most famous scene is Killian Murphy wandering around the deserted streets of London, which it shows how you can you can create a sense of horror from absolute isolation which I think is, is very powerful. It's not, it's not just the, the, the more overtly scary sequences, it's the subdued sequences where, you know, I don't think, any, I don't think anyone had ever seen London portrayed like that before. On, 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 it, was, it was remarkable, wasn't it? Do you remember the film coming out? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I went to see... And I definitely saw 28 weeks later in the cinema, but I don't know if I saw 28 days. But I, I, remember, I remember the visuals... And yeah, it was striking. It was really striking, and 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 I mean, this this kind of, in many ways, it sort of revolutionised the the sort of zombie virus movie, didn't it? You know, it sort of before The Walking Dead did a similar kind of thing on television, and sort of brought a lot of that back into the public public consciousness. It feels like ever so many things have been inspired by Twenty Eight Days Later in the what is it twenty twenty years now, roughly since since that came out. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So it, it feel it does feel like it was a bit of a trendsetter, and it's definitely quite iconic. That whole sequence, yeah, of, of the isolated London, stays in your mind. It's the first thing I think of. You know, if somebody mentions this film, that's what's in my head. So that's it's, the power of it. And I suppose one to bring it back to John Murphy. I mean, John Murphy's score in that sim. John Murphy's on in, it does an, an, a largely electronic score, um, and the sense of apprehension and just bewilderment that, that John Murphy conveys in that. Which I suppose, yeah, because one one must also say that in a, as as we're going through at the moment, a viral pandemic doesn't just create a sense of fear and anxiety; it just creates a sense of genuine like bewilderment and bemusement, as in like what what on earth what on earth is going on? Like the sense of of of, of devastation and desolation. I think John Murphy gets that brilliantly in the early sequences of Twenty Eight Days Later, and then you've got the, the classic track. Uh, in the house in the heartbeat, which accompanies one of the final scenes where Killian Murphy comes back to rescue Naomi Harris's character from the um, the British soldiers who want to like procreate and start society again, 
Um, that's a really famous bit of music. Um, it's been sort of ripped off, referenced, you know, dropped in, you know, dropped into various trailers and and things like that. You know, the, the, and the idea that at that point, Killian Murphy's Human Survivor appears to become just as bad as both the soldiers and the infected themselves, and you've got that slightly, you know, buzzing, pulsating, escalating sense of electronic like you know, menace. Um, very effective score. I have to be honest, and I'm I'm going to express what is probably going to be a very controversial opinion here. I think 28 weeks later is actually a much better film than 28 yes. days later. Do, do you I think agree. that as well? Yes, you, you I are do. the I... only person I've met who who who, who thinks that. <laughs> it's, Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree with you. I found 28 weeks later much much more entertaining, and it's not maybe as iconic, but I definitely enjoy it more. Yeah. It's it's much scarier. I mean, I I remember yeah. I, I saw Twenty Eight Days Later on DVD because I was too young to see it in the cinema when it came out, and I was like, okay, that that was that was good fun. Although I had I had a real problems in Twenty Eight Days Later with some parts of the storyline. I saw Twenty Eight Weeks Later in the cinema, and I came out shaking. I, I I I literally came out thinking I saw it when I was at university, and I remember thinking, if the world if the world is going to collapse, that's how it's going to happen. Yeah, but yeah, I, it, yeah. It's so it's so plausible, and just the sense of carnage and overwhelming sense of chaos the the 28 weeks later really does not take any prisoners at all there are some genuinely horrifying sequences in it i mean 28 days later had its moments but i think it's escalated in 28 weeks later and i know i know a lot of people don't like to say that because there are there are plot points in 28 weeks later that don't really that don't make a lot of sense the idea that you know the, the, the two kids you know they're brought into the contained london they somehow manage to get out and they get back to their old house where they find the the mother played by Catherine mccormack there are there are some, there are silly plot points but i think just the sense of absolute um terror that you get when it all go, when it all goes wrong again when you get the the code red sequence where robert carlyle's character who obviously abandoned <laughs> he abandons his wife at the beginning it begins on that it begins on that note of absolute betrayal and despair and you think oh blimey this this is this is going to really sort of give give my nerves a good workout here um and then he gets infected and then he basically becomes point zero for another outbreak of the rage virus as it's called and john murphy's score i think builds on those sort of abstract electronic textures in 28 days later and it escalates even further because this situation you know this situation is worse because humanity got on top of it and through a series of you know fallacies and oversights it comes back again funny that isn't it um (laughs) or maybe not maybe maybe that isn't funny i don't know but yeah i mean i'm I'm glad to hear that somebody else thinks that 28 weeks later is is better because i found it so much more terrifying in um just it's just relentless i I think in fairness though i understand why people might like days more because days is days i think conveys that sense like you say of isolation and post-apocalypse i guess in 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 a really interesting way but i always felt like the problem with 28 days later is that once it's once they get to all the army stuff with christopher eccleston it sort of tries to become a different film and i i was a bit like yeah i didn't i didn't love that as much whereas 28 weeks later is like you say it's relentless it's violent it's bloody it's horrible it's terrifying and it's just a bit more pulsating for me it just feels like a more of a complete piece even if maybe it's not as artful or as iconic as danny boyle's film so i i get why you know that might be preferred but i think i think murphy does a great job with the music i mean there's that particular um track and i think it's from 28 days later which is in a house in a basement which 
is that brilliant guitar, like a, a sort of a guitar r- piece ramping up the tension and the escalation. And I kept thinking, I don't know if, if I'm misremembering this, but did he reuse that in Kickass? I, I think what it was used in Kickass. There is there is it a was. scene. Is, is is it the scene where Nicolas Cage goes into the warehouse yeah. and then he takes the yeah, big daddy it was, scene. Yeah. Good because I was convinced of that. I was listening to it thinking this is it. This is the big daddy scene in Kickass, surely. But yeah, so I'd forgotten that they were, they were both used in the, in the same film in very different contexts as well, which is interesting in how he manages to score that and it can apply to two very different things. Well, I mean, it shows what a brilliant bit of music it is, and it, 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 it's it's almost become a defining track in terms of, of of paranoia and anger and rage, appropriately enough. And I think that those those tenets of that music are taken even further in Twenty Eight Weeks Later. There is this thing, there is the Code Red track, which accompanies that that horrible sequence where everyone everyone has been locked into the underground car park oh, yeah. or wherever it is, and then Robert Carlyle gets in. And it's just like I just remember thinking when I saw that, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get up and go. I'm I'm, I'm finding this genuinely genuinely terrifying, um, and the music, the way the music kind of completely leaves any kind of organic sense of humanity behind, and it just builds this kind of you know buzzing sense of of, of rage and horror. Um, the music fit it's, it's mixed very very well in the sound design the same in 28 days later as well i think the, the the mixing of the music and the sound which is obviously pivotal for any film is done very very well in both films although i have my problems i mean i, I, I like you i think i think 28 days later fell down badly when it got to the soldier scene i also think there's actually some really bad acting in 28 days later um which which isn't the case in 28 weeks later i think the the quality of the acting across the board in 28 weeks is a lot better and i really do the actors convey the 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 anguish and the horror in 28 weeks later brilliantly but there's there's some really duff performances in 28 weeks later particularly among the soldiers um is like, oh look here we 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 got we got some new people in it didn't we like that you know and it's like could you could you yeah. not could you not do the soldier with the co- the comedy cockney accent yeah. it's just it doesn't work like, no just... <laughs> I'm I'm with you on that. I am. Twenty eight months later, they've talked about it for years. I mean, I'd love it to be I, honest. I would. Yeah, it feels like now's the time to have a run at that. Do you know what I mean? After all this has happened, you could do a really interesting spin on that. Given it what everyone's lived through with this pandemic, I think twenty eight months later should be absolutely fast track now. Uh, you know what I thought was interesting because the, the final shot of twenty eight weeks later is the fact that oh okay the kids get out of of, of the UK and then you don't know what happens and then it cuts that shot in Paris of, in front of the Eiffel Tower with all the infected running towards it I kind of thought well, twenty eight months later is there a possibility of people hold up in the in the Eiffel Tower you know people <laughs> sort of hiding in it um, you know cool, they've it? got supplies and the infected are trying to get up you know they're trying to climb up the, the sides or, or whatever I mean I, I don't know that that was that was what immediately struck to mind as soon as I saw 28 weeks later first time what about people confined to the Eiffel Tower they can't go up they can't go down <laughs> what, what, what are they going <laughs> to do like but yeah I, I'd love whatever they do with it I'd love to see it get on the phone to Alex Garland you know, <laughs> <tell him. laughs> Alex um, Garland yeah I suppose we ought to give Alex Garland his credit actually we mentioned Danny Boyle but yeah, yeah Alex Garland another gene, gene, increasing genius of sci-fi uh, with, with X machina and devs and annihilation yeah f- fabulous filmmaker this is it it would make sense for him to just write and direct 28 months later now given mm. given he's made these these great films you know really good films so who knows i think it'll happen eventually to be honest i think i think it's i think it's a when not not an if with that film but we'll see so I, i'm gonna roll back the clock a little bit and i've got two more left so I'll, I'll rattle through these so my next one is 1971's the omega man by ron grainer 
And this is based on the Richard Matheson story, I Am Legend, the novel, the quite famous post-apocalyptic novel, which then was made into I Am Legend with Will Smith. But the Omega Man was the first kind of adaptation. Uh, no, actually, it was the second one, because they made The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price in the 60s, actually. So I tell a lie. This was the second adaptation. But probably one of the most famous, or would have been the most famous until the Will Smith one. So stars Charlton Heston, and it's all about a... Uh, a, a there's a massive biological warfare um, conflict uh, that destroys the human race, and Robert Neville is the only guy left. Um, he, he's, he injects himself with a vaccine and makes himself immune, the plague wipes out the rest of the world, and he is the only survivor. So, or in theory, the only normal human survivor, and he wanders through a, a landscape and then ends up hunting and killing a cult of plague victims turned into albino mutants. <laughs> um, so it's, it's quite... It's quite a, again, I haven't seen the film, directed by Boris Sagal, who had a, quite a horrific death. I don't know if you, you know this, but he, uh, he, he got... He died... When he walked into accidentally walked into propellers of an air of a, of a helicopter and what? was partially decapitated, yeah, making oh my, something. Oh my god! Yeah, That's... and he was the father of Katie Seigal, who was in um, Married with Children and Sons of Anarchy, and there was the voice of Leela in Futurama. Oh my god! Um, yeah, and he, yeah, horrible. A bit similar to how Vic Morrow died on the Twilight Zone. Twilight movie. Zone, yeah. But yeah, like the very similar time as well, the early eighties. But anyway, um, poor bloke. Yeah, really, really oh awful way to me. die. Yeah. Anyway, this was uh, about ten years after the, uh, the Omega Man, but haven't seen the Omega Man. But I, I listened to the score, and I was really surprised here because Ron Grainer, I remembered as being the guy who did the particularly did the the, the theme music to Doctor Who, the, the very famous theme music to Doctor Who. And I didn't. I hadn't heard anything else he'd ever done. So I listened to this, thinking, "Oh, maybe this is going to be a bit um, not necessarily Doctor Who-y, but sci-fi and melodious." And this is like this was like I went to a jazz club. Like <laughs> this, this reminded me weirdly quite a lot of either. Well, it reminded me of kind of a black exploitation kind of film, or particularly George Martin's *Live and Let Die*, actually, which was around the same time. Which all all use a lot of a lot of you know, trumpets and jazzy kind of sounds and stuff. And I was like, is this a, is this a, a post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie? What the hell is going on? I, so what did you think? Because this really took me by surprise. It, it did with me as well. And I think the black, I, I, I thought exactly the same thing as you. I thought this could be a black exploitation score. This could have been done by Isaac Hayes for Shaft. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I yeah. thought, isn't, isn't it fascinating? I mean, there were a lot of composers, as I mentioned with the Cassandra Crossing earlier, there were a lot of composers doing this. It, it was in the mode of, of the time. Uh, you think of like Ennio Morricone, John Barry, uh, Jerry Goldsmith and, and, and so on. But yeah, I thought it was... Um, it's very, very, very interesting, and I've not seen the film. I've read the book uh, "I Am Legend" by Rich Matheson. I've seen "I Am Legend." I've not seen this particular adaptation, and I'm not massively familiar with Ron Grainer's work. But I, I thought the main theme was. It seems a bit weird to say it was lovely. It was very, um, very listenable, and it's got that kind of like funky. It's got that kind of funky beat to it, which I, I'm assuming is meant to represent the the modernity of, of the Charlton Heston character, the fact that he's a man out of time. But, you know, I think there's something very interesting about the the use of jazz to suggest something that's human, which I, I, I imagine that was, a, that was a deliberate stylistic choice. But then if you listen to the rest of the, of the score, again, I'm speculating because I haven't seen the movie, but the textures that are used for the infected tend to go more towards like the glass harmonica, like the electronics, the organ... And the way that butts heads with with the jazz ensemble, 
is very, very, very interesting and very experimental. But then that's what I suppose that's what you would expect from Ron Grainer, right? Given he did Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I guess I get maybe the black exploitation thing is partly because there was an interesting aspect to the film where it, it there was it was one of the first interracial kisses to appear in a movie and between Charlton Heston and uh, Rosalind Cash who plays a character called Lisa and it was in the script this was particularly put in because the black power movement was in the news and it was happening around this time uh, it was quite prominent and in 92 Whoopi Goldberg got Charlton Heston on her t- on her chat show to talk about about this and talk about how this was one of the first kisses and in his in his um autobiography uh Charlton Heston who you know I'm not if you look back at Charlton Heston's politics I, I don't, he wasn't the most liberal man in the world and I'm not a fan of quite a lot of what the kind of things he he did, he was interested you know he said or he t- talked about um but or he did but he was he was talking about this and um he said he was he, he was uh the, the Rosalind Cash was nervous about doing a love scene with Charlton Heston. And he said, I was in, it was in the seventies that I realized a generation of actors had grown up who saw me in terms of the iconic roles they remembered from their childhoods. And it's a spooky feeling. She told me to screw Moses. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Yeah. yeah very, very good. good. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, so maybe this, the, the score, I don't know, Grainer, composed it on some level because he knew this relationship was in there and he he was he was tapping into some of the you know the cultural you know rising cultural sort of aspects at the time maybe yeah i think and also i think as well that it's a pandemic score that musically doesn't appear to um address the essence of a pandemic what it addresses is the nature of the central character and you're right the nature of the context in which it was made like we were saying about the cassandra crossing you know musically it doesn't absorb those kind of invasive under the skin textures that like a lot of other scores that we've talked about today but it shows there is more than one way to skin a cat and there are the 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 context in which a film score is written is just as important as the nature of the music itself and i think that this this score is 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 very very is very very interesting i I was i was reminded actually of a lot of um for me also it had overtones of a western score at more than one point which i think is that's appropriate for the narrative given that charlton heston is the last man you know the last non-infected man and he's you know there's a moment of reckoning it's like the last stand kind of thing and I, I was reminded of a lot of jerry goldsmith's western scores actually like bandolero and, and and things like that but um yeah i mean the, also i suppose the one thing we should mention is that um on the album there is there is the quotation of the max steiner track a summer place which apparently i looked this up apparently plays during the pre-credit sequence in the movie i haven't seen the movie so i don't really know what the context of that is i can only imagine that that's meant to establish a kind of human element that maybe then gets threatened by you know the 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 epidemic of, of infected people yeah perhaps that's interesting yeah but it's it's definitely a track a, a score that's definitely worth seeking out and, and you know i will go and watch the film eventually at some point but yeah I, I was pleasantly surprised by this i thought it was great it was a really nice listen outside of the movie as well which is one of the not all of them in this list of films are that and this this was one of those for the last one then sean i'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball and I'm going to change my my plan because originally I was going to talk about World War Z and Marco Beltrami's score for that, which is quite good, quite interesting. Um, but I thought there was one that I realised I'd missed that a film that I know you will have seen and I know you'll remember the score from. 
and a film which is very much at the end all about a disease, and that's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Nice. Which which is from Patrick Doyle. Now, I have to say, I do love the subsequent two scores in that series by Michael Giacchino for Dawn and, and uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. They're both, in my opinion, better than this one. But I really do like... I mean, Patrick Doyle's a really good composer, and, and I really do like what he does here for, for this film, which obviously is a reboot of the Planet of the Apes saga, and... It tells the story of, you know, the the the, uh, the birth of Caesar, the ape who then goes on to become like the signature sort of leader for the ape community. And at the very end, there is that scene where the, this, this viral pathogen gets out there, and you see all the um, it cuts like a map of the world, and you see the you see the virus spreading <laughs> in a very sort of contagion esque style way. And you come out of that film again feel like oh my god scary it's similar in some senses to contagion for me i had a similar feeling when i came out of rise of the planet of the apes in a way even though it's a very different film but i really like Doyle's score i think he set set down the template for a lot of the melody that then giacchino picks up with in terms of caesar particularly i think even though he does different things with those scores I think this is a really good starting point for the kind of lyricism that you get in this series because I th- I th- I think it's a really good great trilogy of films and I think the score the scores for them are particularly good. Yeah, I think lyricism is is the key word because Patrick Doyle's key register is lyricism. Um, you think of the work that he's done for Kenneth Branagh, like Hamlet or um, Henry V, or the things like Sense and Sensibility, uh, Harry Potter, Nanny McPhee's a fabulous composer. We re- re- got a lovely lovely um, gift for melody. And I think that, yeah, you're right. I think in terms of the three scores, this is probably the more sensitive of the three, if only because this this, this score o- occupies the film that is kind of pre-apocalypse. So, you know, the, the, the point of the, of, the, of the second and third film scored by Giacchino is that, you know, humanity, there's been, it's been laid waste to humanity and therefore, you know, you have to try and find humanity in the simian characters. And, you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to not be human? And so those two scores are perhaps more challenging in terms of their abstract tone whereas this rise of the planet of the apes which is a terrific film is more you know it's more conventional maybe um i don't i don't mean that in a bad way i mean in it's conventional in the sense you know it sets the story up that will get worse and you know where humanity will become even more fragmented later on it's it's interesting almost like what james newton howard did with outbreak you've got the um the idea of the, the textures of, of, a, of a particular country, which is Africa, which represents, you know, at the very beginning, we see that, you know, Caesar's mother is taken from Africa. I think it's Africa back to the lab in America. And you've got the use of the, the exotic textures, textures to suggest the, the, you know, the genesis of a potential virus, because then she gives birth to Caesar, who is then, you know, sort of treat, treated to this um, serum. And then he becomes um, sort of hyper intelligent. As I said, Doyle's gift for melody is fabulous. And Caesar's theme in this, which flowers at the very, in the very, very final sequence when he climbs up the tree and looks up the, you know, looks at the Golden Gate Bridge what you have is is a moment of liberation for that character but it's also a very ironic moment because you know that although the, the music is triumphant and gorgeous as only Doyle can do this is this is basically the downfall of humanity now um Caesar's freedom comes at the expense of of humanity with this virus that's about that's about to be unleashed uh, I also think that the what the score does is it demonstrates that Doyle has got a real capacity for action music, which isn't often tapped. And then certain scores have done that. You think of um, Harry Harry Potter and, and the Goblet of Fire has got some very very dark 
arresting like gripping music in it but the the actual outbreak scene when caesar leads the simian uprising is is brilliantly scored and there again there's a lot of use of exotic percussion in it to suggest the fact that you know this is being propelled along by you know a, a, a kind of you know there, there is there is there is a, an exotic origin to what's going on there is also a kind of viral underpinning to all of this there's also the um the use of the, the during that scene there's the moment where they they lob the um the metal spikes through the police car and then you get that that alarm that alarm sounds which is synced to like different cuts as we cut closer in towards seas you've got that alarm noise which is that's a very experimental thing to do that's the kind of thing i would have expected jerry goldsmith to do yeah um, yeah it's, it's i think it's it's a it's a brilliant score I, I'm, I'm glad i'm glad you i'm glad you changed it because i remember when the film came out no one was expecting that film to be as good as it was and it's kind of like when andy circus's caesar first speaks and says no you could hear a pin drop in the cinema it's like wow that's that's really really well done and really convincing and it was a sign of how emotionally invested people were in the movie that you could literally feel everyone going back in their seat going wow what what on earth is going to happen next and i think the confidence of that whole trilogy is that it manages to really make caesar the main character the ape the main character who carries the whole thing and uh, you know uh, not all of the human characters end up carrying through all three films that's a rarity in itself and i think that come a lot of that is to do with the music and i think Giacchino particularly builds on that brilliantly in the next two films particularly war for the planet of the Apes, which i think is a masterful score and so yeah but but a lot of the groundwork that doyle does here sets up that you know that template that allows this franchise this this trilogy to grow and i think without this as you say and you've described really well you would have had a harder time musically building on that and, and creating even better scores for the subsequent sequels. So, yeah, but it's um, I'm glad I remembered this because yeah, like I say, that final scene of the virus spreading, I was <laughs> gave me it's a chill like, oh, again. It's like, oh, dear. One. oh dear, oh dear, oh god, <laughs> you know. And again, this was when was this? This was 2011, wasn't was it? 2011, yeah. Same year as Contagion. So that year we had two films that were <laughs> filmmakers in Hollywood going, "There's gonna be a virus, guys." <laughs> and we didn't, didn't, why didn't listen. We listen. Why didn't we listen? Why to didn't them? we listen? <laughs> Cinema's been telling us about this for years. Is. for decades there will be a virus guys it's gonna get loose lots of you are gonna die but we didn't listen and and you know we're not trivializing this we, hopefully people don't think we're trivializing this it's what's happened is terrible and there's l- so many people have died and it's it is tragic and you know more people sadly are going to die from it and everything like that we're not really not trivializing it in any way but it's just to, to underscore the point that people have been screaming for the rooftops for years that something like this was going to happen cinema has been reflecting it for years and we've kind of turned a blind eye and I thought and thought maybe been a bit too complacent in our thought process. So, yeah, the, it's been interesting talking about these films and going and, and thinking about them, if not watching them all again, but thinking about them and listening to the music. And it's amazing. The variation is amazing, Sean, I think. The things we've talked about, the varied kind of styles just shows the range you can do for films. And to be fair, the range, the difference in the in the, the approaches to, to viruses and plagues and pandemics that cinema has given us. Yeah, as, as I said at the beginning, I think that film film music is marked by its adaptability and by its ability to mutate and take on different forms, to take on different compositional styles, different tones. And yeah, I think what we've talked about today shows that it's you know it's a very the the, the genius of film composers they have to be enormously adaptable to 
a host of different genres and stories from different directors you might have different approaches and so on and so forth some of these films have dealt with visual effects some haven't you know some of them have been like sort of thriller scores thriller movies some of them have been more sober examinations of it and the fact that it's the role of each individual composer to understand what is the emotional truth at the heart of each film and i think that all of the scores that we've sort of picked today sort of gets to the 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 nature of you know how 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 do we score the nature of of a virus you know and it's 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 different between all of these scores but i think it's done fabulously in in each of them yeah i agree i completely agree so it's been it's been a lot of fun talking about it and uh I'm not going to go and watch all of them because I don't want to be more scared. <laughs> I'm, scared <laughs> enough by the, I'm scared enough by the news. So, uh, but I will uh, go and listen to, the, to more of these scores. And, and like I said, there will be a Spotify playlist that is in the show notes that I encourage anyone to listen to if you haven't already um, that can give you a little bit of a taste of some of this stuff. So, yeah, thanks, Sean. It's been great. We'll be back soon, won't we, for another uh, discussion, another ti- hopefully fairly timely discussion. We don't 100% know what that's going to be yet, but we've got, we've got some ideas. So, uh as always, it's great to talk to you, and um, just stay safe, Sean. You know, just uh, and you, yeah, this be, is, be safe fun. out there. Yeah, yes, yeah, stay yeah, safe, yeah. and we'll speak soon. Yeah, for sure. And um, remember, guys, we're uh, on the We Made This Podcast Network at We Made This Pod and We Made This Pod dot com. With lots of other podcasts that will give you a little bit of a taster about in a second. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll be back very soon. And as I say to Sean, but stay safe, guys. Um, look after yourselves and your families. And uh, until then. Keep listening to the music and we hope you've enjoyed us talk about it between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. The time is now. A millennium podcast. I have actually seen the 2006 asylum movie, uh, The Da Vinci Treasure, which is one of these mockbusters or mockbusters. It's absolutely (laughs) terrible, apart from one thing... Um, the antagonist of that movie is played by uh, an actor called Lars Henriksen. That's the only reason I watched oh, it. Right. Okay. Right. I, um, I watched it quite drunk, as I recall, which is probably the best way to watch it. But yeah. um, Lars is the only reason to watch that, so I'm not but it was very much a, a sort of knockoff of the, the same sort of um, storyline and so on. But um, yes, sorry, I've gone off topic there. But it's um, okay. It's my um, fault for looking at Madame Brown books and <laughs> thinking, why did I buy them in the first place? But yeah, <laughs> I was so eighteen. It, I'll, yeah. I'll put it that I was eighteen. <laughs> we played this. Where and when did your journey with video games begin? You see, this is why I couldn't. I had to be honest about my age because <laughs> my first video gaming experience was the Sinclair Spectre. Oh, Specky guy. <laughs> oh, well, you see, we didn't have anything like that in our home. And um, I was old enough to have had a 48k, but my dad kind of resisted. So I then, we did get the 128k, and that had a built-in fucking tape deck, which was the <laughs> coolest thing in the 80s. Cinemortuary podcast. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They kind of they kind of run around hell a bit, which to be honest doesn't look that bad. It just looks a bit. It just looks a bit like a night out in Doncaster. Yeah, it's just a bit janky, isn't it? They're, they're just in someone's basement. Yeah, exactly. I believe yeah. this is this is where we get the only bit of tit in the whole movie as well. Yeah, very briefly. <laughs> very briefly. Yeah, very yeah. briefly. It, it's, yeah. it's there and it's gone. The the best part about this for me when I was watching it is at this point. 
Just as they go into hell, my girlfriend stands up from her chair and tries to ask me what's going on. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening. We made this pod.com.